My name is Sam Wong, and I'm chair of this uh, public lectures committee, and I'm also a professor of molecular biology and neuroscience. Um, it's my pleasure tonight to um, welcome a speaker who at least is within a couple of professional steps of my own discipline, uh, and that speaker is Douglas Melton. I'm here to tell you a little bit about the lecture series itself. As you, I think most of you already know, this is a lecture series that's open to the entire Princeton community, and you can read about the entire series at lectures.princeton.edu, and this series is also webcast and cablecast. Um, tonight's lecture is part of the Lewis Clark Vanuxum Lecture Series. This is a series that was founded in 1912 by a bequest under the will of Lewis Clark Vanuxum of the class of 1879. And he made his money in insurance and was a specialist in insurance law. Uh, but in my view, uh, fortunately for all of us, his interests in public lectures included men and women of science. And uh, speakers in the Vanuxum series have included Antonio Damasio, Brian Green, Lord Robert May, Robert Penro Roger Penrose, Jared Diamond, and Matt Ridley. And topics have included Edwin Hubble speaking on the exploration of space, uh, Thomas Mann on Goethe's Faust, James Conant, on post-war science, and Carl Sagan on extraterrestrial life. And so you can see this is a very interesting series, uh, and tonight I think will be uh, every bit as interesting. Tonight, Professor Melton is going to be introduced by my colleague in molecular biology, Professor Eric Vishaus. Professor Vishaus is um, Squibb Professor of Molecular Biology, Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator, and winner of the Nobel Prize in 1995 in physiology or medicine. Professor Vishaus. It's my, my special pleasure tonight to welcome Doug Melton to speak to us on stem cells, stem cell research and policy issues associated with that. Uh, Doug Melton is the Thomas Dudley Cabot Professor of Natural Sciences at Harvard University. He's an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and he is the co-director of the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Doug is also, um, uh, so in, in the tonight's I'm looking forward to tonight's lecture and on stem cells and policy, on, on stem cells, both the science and the policy issues associated with that. I've known Doug for more than 30 years now, I think. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to his lecture as much as I am is that I've known him as a scientist and I always see in his lectures, even in his most recent lectures, even when he is appearing before Congress and speaking on policy issues like stem cells, I always see in Doug the scientist that I got to know back when we were both graduate students and uh, postdocs and young scientists starting together. Duggan uh, had an extraordinary interest in developmental biology and during that period did some of the really seminal exper experiments in understanding how cells in an early embryo, these were amphibian embryos, frog embryos, are directed into specific fates. Some extraordinary experiments where you would take little, and one, one of the most memorable ones is to take and very carefully slice off the the ends of the, the one end of uh, the, the frog embryo and isolate the RNAs in that 
region, localized in that region of the egg to identify those factors that the mother put into the egg to define and set up the initial pattern in the, in the embryo. And those experiments are classics. They're described in all textbooks. What was remarkable for me, though, was Doug's further investigation of that phenomena to identify what these molecules were, how they signaled, and to use them actually in what were deeply informative biochemical experiments on signaling pathways in general. So one of the things that's very striking about Doug as a scientist is his ability to go very deeply and rigorously into scientific problems and not re define something on a phenomenological level but then get deeply into the actual mechanisms involved at all levels. In the early 90s, Doug shifted his research interest from basic problems in, in developmental biology to, uh, to ste ultimately to the stem cell work that he's going to talk about today. And that, for a scientist like myself who works in basic and uh, in problems of basic research and that view Doug as in my basic research camp was, seemed to me a very brave decision because most of us would feel comfortable doing science in our ivory towers and, and would generally shy away from problems, even if they were theoretically interesting, if they have too much of a public or a, a, a political import. So what's been very interesting for me is to watch how Doug has handled working in a research area of great, of great social and, and political importance. And what strikes me, and I think it will strike you very much in tonight's lecture, is that in thinking about the science of stem cells, but also in thinking about the policy issues associated with stem cells, he's brought a very rigorous scientific and objective evaluation of each of the questions. It's crucial to be able, as a scientist, not only to see a phenomenon, but to define what are the relevant questions. And I think that's what we'll hear about tonight. So with no further introduction, Doug. Thank you, Eric, for that very kind introduction. And I have good news for you, which is that while Eric talked about me delving into the depths of details, I will not be doing that tonight. Um, and it will not be a purely a biological lecture. Um, but before I begin, I would like to thank the organizing committee for the invitation to come and speak to you here about my favorite subject, which is stem cells. Um, can you hear me this way, or should I put this microphone back? All right, so we'll use both microphones. I'm going to talk tonight about uh, stem cells, both from the point of view of the basic biology and try to explain why scientists like myself are so excited about them, what we think their potential is, and I will also directly address public policy issues and give my own personal views on where our nation stands in trying to navigate a way to explore the biological and medical potential of stem cells in a way that's consistent with the ethics of a moral society. I'm going to start the talk, though, to make clear uh, with a bit about what stem cells are, and I'll try to put them in a general context for those of you that are not biologists. So let me begin then by just saying that I'm going to touch on these various issues tonight, on public policy and politics, philosophy and religion, a little bit about law and business, but I'm going to start in the center with a real focus on what are stem cells. How did biologists come to get so interested in stem cells? Well, I'll first give you a kind of Whiggish history 
of biology by saying that much of the last century, the 20th century, had nothing to do with stem cells, but was instead focused on genes and DNA. Now, of course, anything that's said so extremely can't be true in its entirety. But in general, biologists used the very power of what's called reductionist molecular biology to get at the basis of the code of life. This began with an experiment you'll remember from grade school where Mendel worked with peas to understand the idea, the abstract notion that there were factors that were inherited that determined what we are and what we look like. There was an important experiment by Avery McLeod and McCartney to demonstrate that this hereditary material, the stuff of it, was DNA, followed by probably the most famous experiment in biology in the last century. Every kindergartner knows that DNA is a double helix in 1953. Then the elucidation of the genetic code followed by the possibility of determining the base order, the order of all the letters in 1975, and that culminated at the turn of the century quite nicely for this overview with the sequence of the human genome. Now, this, there are too many people to note who contributed to this, but I will note for those of you here that you have a very active genome center headed by David Botstein and others that's now trying to figure out how to make sense of all that genetic information. How does the genotype determine our phenotype? I'm going to suggest to you, though, that something was lost in all of this, this focus on molecular biology and DNA, could reasonably make the public believe that the answer to biology is DNA, that genes are our destiny, which we know not to be true, but that the focus has been too much on DNA. And I'll suggest that you are now living, of course, in the 21st century, which will be a more synthetic century in biology about cells. Cells are the units of life. Cells are alive. Cells divide to make more cells. And this century, though it's always dangerous to make predictions, will be about cells and stem cell therapies to the same extent that the last century was about DNA and genes. Why, then, am I giving this introduction? Because I would further argue that among cells, the most interesting, the sort of mother of all cells, is the stem cell. So I'm going to explain what stem cells are and, as I said, why we're so interested in them. A stem cell, you'll be happy to hear, has only two important properties that you need to keep in mind. In this cartoon, you see a cell with its nucleus in the middle, which is where all the genes would be found here. So this represents a single cell. And the stem cell has one, as I said, two special properties, but the first of which is a capacity to make more of itself, as shown here by that arrow. Biologists in general call this self-renewal, but it should remind you of terms like replenishment, regeneration, and renewal. How do our bodies maintain themselves? How do, they make cop how do cells make copy of themselves? This is an interesting problem. It's a problem in trying to figure out how the genes are arranged and expressed to tell a cell to make an exact replica of itself. This is something we don't understand very well. The second property of stem cells is not just their ability to self-renew, but instead their ability to make daughter cells or progeny which are highly specialized, what a biologist calls differentiated. They're different from one another. And the example I'll give you is a hematopoietic stem cell, a blood stem cell, which you might have heard of as a bone marrow stem cell, which has the capacity to make all the different types of cells in the blood. Many people will know this from its use in a clinical context where people suffering from certain blood cancers receive a bone marrow transplant following whole body irradiation. 
A bone marrow transplant really means the transplantation of a blood stem cell to repopulate the blood in that patient. So there are two properties then. First, self-renewal, and second, differentiation into many cell types, what people sometimes call multi-lineage differentiation. Here, all the types of the blood. Now, those two properties, differentiation and renewal, are true for all stem cells. But among stem cells, biologists generally divide them into two classes, adult stem cells, which would be this type, a hematopoietic or blood stem cell, and one you've read about in the newspapers called an embryonic stem cell. So why are we so interested in embryonic stem cells? Well, there are a number of reasons, but one of them is that an embryonic stem cell is not restricted in the types of cells which it can give rise to. It can give rise to all the different cell types in the body. So here you see suddenly this arrow is going in many different ways. They can give rise to all the types of blood cells. They can give rise to all kinds of nerve cells. They can also give rise to the cell type that interests me more, most, and I'll tell you about more later, a cell within the pancreas called the beta cell, the cell that produces insulin. But for now, the point is that an embryonic stem cell can make any kind of cell in the body. And I want to emphasize this point with a few slides. It can also self-renew, of course. So there are two kinds of cells. In general, embryonic stem cells have the most potential, can form any cell type. They are immortal in culture, and they're plentiful. They grow like weeds in a petri dish, so you can get plenty of them to study biochemically and otherwise. Adult stem cells are, in contrast, organ-specific, can form rather few cell types, have a limited lifespan, and other than the case of blood and perhaps a few other cell types like skin, they've proven to be very hard to isolate. I want to emphasize this point because it turns out to be politically important, as you'll hear later in my talk. So embryonic stem cells are truly special. Only embryonic stem cells can make all the cells in the body. Adult stem cells are restricted. And an important point, which I haven't mentioned yet, is that not all of our adult tissues have a stem cell. So in the context of embryonic, or sorry, adult stem cells being restricted, I want to emphasize the point that blood stem cells only make blood. Now, people who've been reading the newspaper might be surprised to hear that, because in the last few years, there have been unsubstantiated claims that, for example, fat stem cells can make any part of the body or blood stem cells can make any part of the body. That's simply not true. It has been touted for political purposes, but the scientific community has known for a long time that the evidence upon which those claims were based was rather thin and faulty. And now ever more experiments are proving that the claims that adult stem cells are multipotential and can do everything an embryonic stem cell can is just puppycock. It's just plain false. Another important point is that while we have an adult stem cell for blood, and for skin and for parts of our nervous system, for our intestine, there are many tissues which probably do not have an adult stem cell. One which we've studied in some detail, the pancreatic islets, do not have an adult stem cell. This is a relatively new field, and I cannot tell you now whether there is an adult stem cell for the kidney or for the lung or for other tissues because the evidence just isn't very good yet. So there's clear evidence for adult stem cells for things like blood, and there's clear evidence that they don't exist for things like the pancreatic beta cell. But for most tissues, we just don't know the answer yet. I'm showing this slide because I want to emphasize the biological point that embryonic stem cells then can make any part of the body. 
This is an extremely valuable tool or reagent. If you're interested, say, in high-tech things like electronics, I would say you could think of an embryonic stem cell sort of like being a transistor. When transistors were discovered, I don't think any of the people involved with that predicted that you'd be using cell phones and iPods and things, but those all derive from the transistor. Similarly, it's hard for me to predict what we're going to learn in, in its entirety from embryonic stem cells, but it's quite an, a powerful reagent to have something which can make any part of the human body in a Petri dish, and we're trying to figure out how it does that. i could give some other examples here. Many people study how, for example, genes are turned on or off to make the different cells in the blood. Um, a very interesting area of activity uh, done here at the Genome Center and, say, done in Ihor Lamishka's lab is to try to figure out how do these cells know which genes to turn on and off? How does, if a cell has, has 30,000 genes and it might express a third of those, how does it know which 10,000 to turn on or off? How do those genes give the cells these properties? So this is a huge challenge for biologists. But the point about which there's no controversy is that these cells have that capacity. We don't understand how they do it, but they clearly have the capacity to make any part of the body. That alone would be sufficient, in my view, to justify the exploration of human embryonic stem cells, to understand the basic biology and the principles of how our bodies are made and maintained. But as you all appreciate, our society suffers from a number of degenerative diseases, about which I'll say more now. And this is a further reason to warrant a, a very serious and aggressive study of the properties of these cells. So I'm going to make a little divergence here now and t talk about degenerative diseases. And again, I'm going to say things which in detail may not be absolutely true, but in general are true, which is that the degenerative diseases from which our society largely suffers have several things in common. One of them is that in most cases, these diseases result from the failure, the absence, or the dysfunction in one particular kind of cell. Let's consider Alzheimer's, where it's a dysfunction in the forebrain basal neurons. Parkinson's disease is a cell just a little bit further back, a midbrain neuron that makes a chemical signal called dopamine. Amyotropic lateral sclerosis is a dysfunction of motor neurons, as is spinal muscular atrophy. Cardiovascular disease, obviously, is a problem with our cardiomyocytes, our heart cells. And diabetes, the disease that interests me, particularly type 1 diabetes, is the loss or absence of the beta cell that makes insulin. So the point I want to make at this juncture is that these degenerative diseases have sort of one thing in common, is that the environment and the genes come crashing down to make a mistake on one kind of cell. Let's also remember that we're not talking about diseases which only affect a few people. In fact, I can say with great confidence that everyone in this room will either suffer from one of these diseases or have a loved one or a child or a parent suffer from them. So it's not a sort of sideshow in the medical arena. This is something that affects everyone in their daily lives. This is an estimate here from Perry in the year 2000 that the number of people who could potentially benefit, and of course these numbers are always exaggerated a bit, from this sort of research is 128 million in the U.S. I want to talk a bit about these diseases looking this, using this diagram of a woman here, and we're going to first have a look at her heart and remind you that heart disease is 
a very important problem. In fact, often said to be the number one killer in the U.S. And so what happens in heart disease, of course, is a failure, a dysfunction of the heart muscle cell, the cardiomyocyte. I want to now connect these two things together. An embryonic stem cell that can make any part of the body, how would you use that reagent to think about learning about heart disease? So this is one of my favorite experiments, which I show to Harvard undergraduates all the time. In fact, undergraduates do this experiment in the lab because it's so powerful to look at it, and yet it also emphasizes all the things we don't understand. So there's a picture of a Petri dish with human embryonic stem cells growing in little colonies or mounds. We remove the factors, if you look at that arrow there, we remove the factors that allow those cells to self-renew or to make more of themselves. So the arrow goes away. We do that by changing the media or the soup in which these cells are growing. And as a consequence of that, these cells spontaneously differentiate. They specialize, kind of like popcorn. They're not doing it in a controlled way, and they make different kinds of cells. You can see here these different colors are intended to represent that those undifferentiated or unspecialized cells have now made specialized cells. And I'm going to show you the example of them making cardiomyocytes or human heart cells, which you see there beating in the dish. So this is really quite an amazing little experiment. You begin on day one, you remove the media, and you change it. And a week later, you come back, and there are mounds of cells pumping like you know, Edgar Allan Poe's telltale heart. They're pumping in the dish. And those aren't mouse cells. Those aren't fish cells. Those are human heart cells. Now, of course, it's exaggerated in this slide to make you think it's bigger than your heart. But in fact, it's really the size of a, a period on a sentence. It's a little tiny dot of pumping cells. Nevertheless, the puzzle is, what are these arrows? Like, what's going on? Where did the cell get the information? How does it know how to do that? Why did the neighboring cells do something else, become a nerve? Why did these cells become heart cells? This is one of the great kind of engineering challenges now in this area of biology, is to control or direct the differentiation of these cells. Now, speaking loosely, one can think in the long term about how you might use these cells for transplantation, but that's many years away. Right now, what we use these cells for is to try to understand the basic biology of how cells know what to become. And that will be deeply informative in thinking about what goes wrong with them. Let me talk a bit, as the last example here I'll give on this cell replacement idea, about the disease which interests me the most, type 1 diabetes. This is a disease where part of the pancreas, shown here in our android woman. Actually, could we have the lights down, or do I need to do that? I think I need to do that. Don't worry, I think I got it here. Yes, magic, great, thank you. So um, we're looking here at the, the pancreas, which your pancreas is about the size of a banana sitting about there in the middle of your body. And in type 1 diabetics, the portion of the pancreas that makes insulin, the pancreatic beta cells, are defective. And I'm going to show you that in a little more detail here. Here's the pancreas and the duodenum, the top of the intestine, and the stomach would be up here. And within this banana-shaped organ, there are about 100,000 to a million islets, as they're called. Or you could think of them like raisins in a, in a bread. And within these islets, there's an important cell, shown here in yellow, that makes insulin. 
Now, in real life, in a microscope, they look something like this. This is a picture of one of these islets looked at with a special microscope kind of called a confocal microscope, which allows us to see the four different kinds of cell in this raisin. So they're these three make these three hormones, but the key one is the blue cell that makes insulin. And in type 1 diabetes, that cell is destroyed. There's no insulin. And the patient then requires daily blood glucose checks and insulin injections for the rest of their life. This is a disease that's on increase in the population for reasons unclear, but at the present rate of onset, one in 200 newborns in the United States will be fully insulin-dependent by the age of 18. Type 1 and type 2 diabetes combined cost the U.S. healthcare system $135 billion a year, so you might think this is something that we should pay a bit more attention to. How is it treated at the moment? Well, as you probably know, at the moment it's treated by insulin injections, either through a syringe or a pump, but the patient requires insulin for survival. So it's a treatment, not a cure, and patients in general suffer from complications after having the disease for years because of the lack of adequate glucose control. Now, a promising future in this has been demonstrated by transplantation experiments in which islets isolated from human cadavers cadavers have been transplanted into patients along with non-steroidal immunosuppressants. I didn't remind you that this is an autoimmune disease, so one has to block the immune attack in order to provide new beta cells. But I thought I'd show you a picture here of human islets isolated from two cadavers which are now ready for transplantation. Here they're stained with a a, a staining uh, zinc stain, which uh, stains the insulin-producing cells red. You can see a little contamination here of these white cells, which are not insulin-producing cells. But in general, this sea of cells is a group of cells that would be transplanted into a patient. Now, the trouble, of course, is that one can't get enough islets from cadavers to treat the one million diabetics in the U.S., but as a proof of principle, this shows that islet transplantation is a feasible and very positive step forward on a way to provide insulin, which then allows the patient to be under proper glucose control. This still leaves the problem, which I'll come back to later, of the autoimmune attack. So this is sort of obvious, I would say, to an undergraduate or even a high school student. You have a disease in which a cell type is missing, and you have an embryonic stem cell that can make any part of the body. Well, let's connect those dots and turn an embryonic stem cell, as shown here, into a beta islet cell, a cell that makes insulin. Now, if it were only so simple, that would be great, but it turns out that like your own education, one has to educate an embryonic stem cell in a step-by-step process to become a pancreatic beta cell. There is no condition or molecule or soup that you can add which will immediately turn an embryonic stem cell into a pancreatic beta cell. And I need to remind you that this slide could have been drawn otherwise, where this embryonic stem cell could become a cardiomyocyte or a neuron or a skin cell, or if you don't have enough fat, you could ask it to make a fat cell, whatever kind of cell you want. Embryonic stem cells can, in principle, make any of those cells. We spend most of our time trying to understand how to control these arrows here, that is, how to tell a cell what to become. And in my normal scientific talks, that's generally what I speak about, is how do we learn what are the signals that we would give to this cell at each step of the way to make a bucket load of pancreatic beta cells for transplantation. 
I thought I'd just show you one experiment tonight, which we're encouraged by, where we're taking a kind of pharmaceutical approach to say, can we screen for molecules, for small molecules, for chemicals, drug-like molecules, which we could use to move cells from here to here? And we do that by having what's called a marker, a gene that comes on that tells us the cell is this kind of cell and not a cell that's, say, going to be a nerve cell or a muscle cell. I'll just show you that here, where if we take a sea of embryonic stem cells and look at their nuclei here in blue, we see that they've been growing in the dish as the control, and the, the background level of them taking that first step to become a SOC17 positive cell, that is an endoderm cell, are these red dots here, and you can see that most of the cells are white, not red. This is a computer analysis of the image. But if we add a growth factor and a small molecule that we've discovered by this screen, and you can see we can turn now 70% of those cells into that first step. So this is clearly one of those glass half-full, half-empty things. You could say, well, my gosh, you mean you spent years, three years, and you can only go sit with a 70% efficiency to step one. You don't know how many more steps you need. It could take you forever. I happen to see this as more than half full, that we've demonstrated we can now control one of these steps, and we actually know quite a lot about controlling this step as well. We're not certain how many steps there are yet, but I'm confident that over the next years, we and others can learn how to tell embryonic stem cells to become particular cell types, like a pancreatic beta cell. So in terms of controlling differentiation, I think we'll see that that's going to be an exciting area for research over the next few years. How does this relate back to all of these diseases? Well, I think it's obvious to you then that there are scientists studying how to turn embryonic stem cells into the other cell types which are absent or defective in these various diseases. In some cases, such as Parkinson's, there's reason to believe the presence or the capacity, the ability to make midbrain neurons, dopaminergic neurons, one could think about using them in transplantation into patients. In my own opinion, it's silly to think about transplanting forebrain neurons into Alzheimer's patients, expecting to see a recovery of memory or other functions. The nervous system is wired in just too complicated a way. So I don't mean to imply that in all of these cases, cell transplantation is going to be the treatment that would come of it. Rather, it's going to be understanding how these cells are made, and that will allow us to think about how to maintain them or replenish them. I want to focus on that in the remaining part of my, the science part of this talk because I feel that the, what's been written about in the press has largely been that scientists are obsessed with the idea of doing cell transplantation, that that's going to be what will come of embryonic stem cell research. In my own opinion is that's unlikely to be the first medical benefits we see from this sort of research. I see instead the prospect for getting at the root causes of these degenerative diseases in a way I'll now describe. And this involves a method called cloning, which you've also heard about. So I'm now going to talk about cloning and why scientists are interested in this. We're not interested in this because we want to make copies of people. We're interested in this because we want to make genetically identi identical copies of cells to understand the root causes of these diseases. So let me talk a bit more about that. The degenerative diseases I've mentioned so far tonight have a few things in common. And let's see if I can turn up the lights a bit here. Yes. The things they have in common 
are that, first of all, none of those degenerative diseases are caused by a single genetic change, by a mutation. Now, there are diseases where that is true, like cystic fibrosis. But these complicated neurodegenerative diseases, cardiovascular disease and diabetes, are known to be caused by a combination of many genes. And in fact, in general, it's not even known how many. Could be 10, could be 100, but it's more than one gene. The second confounding issue is that having that constellation or set of genes is not sufficient to cause someone to get the disease. From that, one can accurately conclude that there are environmental factors that affect the outcome, the phenotype. One way to remember that is that there are identical twins, one of whom has type 1 diabetes and one doesn't, one of whom has Parkinson's, the other doesn't. They have the same genes, but something happened during their life that caused one to get the disease and not the other. And finally, what makes it so difficult is that there is almost certain to be a long time between the primary cause in the Aristotelian sense, the initial cause and the effect. So to joke about it, though it's not a joking matter, you could say the reason you might get Alzheimer's is because you didn't eat enough cucumbers when you were 15 years old. We don't know what the causes are in the environment, but we know there's an environmental cause and a long time between cause and effect. You could even say that those reasons combined, many genes, an environmental signal, and a long time between cause and effect, are a good excuse for the biomedical scientists for why there have been so little advances in studying and treating these diseases. These are very difficult problems. And so I'm going to propose to you tonight what many in the scientific community believe is a way forward at getting at the root causes of these diseases, and it involves combining stem cell potential with what is a mouthful to say, somatic cell nuclear transfer or cloning. I'm going to take as an example, even though my own lab works on diabetes in this context, what my colleague Kevin Egan works on, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, or ALS. This is a disease in which the motor neurons degenerate. And if you watch here, let me see if I turn that down a bit again. If you watch here, then this cartoon is supposed to make you think those, of those motor neurons degenerating. Yes. Now, as you well know, this is a horrific disease for which there's no treatment. 50% of the people who contract or get this disease do not survive more than three years. And there's really no treatment for it. And there's really very little understanding of the causes of the motor neuron degeneration. So here's the idea. Let's combine cloning potential, that is cloning, with somatic or somatic cell nuclear transfer with stem cell potential in the following way. And I'm going to show you a little movie about how we do this. So the idea here is that we want to make an embryonic stem cell which captures or contains all of the genes that cause the person to get that disease. That's really the goal. The way that's done is to take a skin sample, a biopsy from a patient, and remove its nucleus, which, remember then, contains all of the genes that were responsible for the person getting the disease and to create an embryonic stem cell. Now, what one's read about in the newspapers is patient-specific stem cells for transplantation. But let's remember, in this case, that would be silly because you'd be taking diseased cells and putting back in a person that's suffering from a disease. That's sort of a silly circle. You wouldn't want to make pancreatic beta cells this way and transplant them back into a type 1 diabetic because they'll be destroyed the same way the original ones were. The point here, then, is not what's in the newspapers to do patient-specific cells for transplantation, but is instead 
to use these as an in vitro model to get at the root cause of the disease, to ask and answer the question, why do motor neurons in an ALS patient degenerate? Why do beta cells disappear in a type 1 diabetic? Why do dopaminergic neurons disappear in a Parkinson's patient? I'm going to show you this in two forms. First is these sort of cartoons, and then a little movie. I'm showing this because it's not clear, I think, to many how this experiment is actually done. Step one is to remove an unfertilized egg or an oocyte from a human female the same way that is done in an in vitro fertilization clinic. Step two is to remove the nucleus, that is the chromosomes, the genes from that cell. Then begin with an ALS patient here on the left and do a skin biopsy, which is more than a pinch but is not all that painful, to remove cells which contain nuclei, therefore having all the genes that represent the genetic information that made that person. The nucleus is removed from the skin cell, transplanted there, and maybe I did that a little quickly, into the unfertilized enucleated oocyte. And from that, we then derive a human embryonic stem cell. And here I'll show you a movie of that. So this will be a little dark, and I hope this movie works. So what we're going to see is a kind of assembly line. Before I start it, I'll just tell you what you're looking at. Over here on the left is a holding pipette. This is the cavity, and there's a little suction applied to this. And here's an egg with an outer membrane called a zona pellucida. Here's the egg inside. And you can't really see it here, but one can, with a little practice, recognize where the nucleus or the chromosomes are inside that egg. And here's the business of the experiment, a pipette. The major advance in this field, actually, came from a simple thing I might just take a minute to explain, which is that for years people made these pipettes with a very sharp end, like a syringe needle, which would then damage the egg by cutting it so accurately. And Yamanagachi and his colleagues figured out that a better way to do it is to begin with a blunt pipette and connect it to a device called a piezoelectric device, which essentially makes it act like... Um, well, those of you who are my age and older will remember Woody Woodpecker, who it'll just kind of, like a jackhammer, penetrates the edge here. And you'll see that happen, although the vibrations are so quick you can't see it. And it pulverizes the membrane, but then it doesn't cut a hole in it, so the membrane seals up afterward. So what you'll see now is, first of all, the pipette drilling a hole in the, this membrane, then going in and removing the chromosome, and then in the subsequent picture you'll see a nucleus being transferred back into the egg. And it better work now after all of that talk. Yes, good. Here we go. So first thing you see, the pipette is going to drill a little hole in the membrane. It's sucking it out. You might see it spit it out here in a second. There, it sucked out part of the membrane. It spit out the debris there a bit. Now it's going in, it's removing the nucleus. And if you watch carefully here, you might be able to see a line, a vertical line right there. Can you see that line? That is the chromosomes from that nucleus which came out. And now that's just being discarded. So now we have an egg, we're gonna get it out of the way, kick it out of the way, and that egg no longer has any genetic information. Now we maybe do another one. So after you get a little bit good at this, you can line them up like a sort of assembly line, remove, drill a hole, and then go in and remove the nuclei. And here you're going to watch nuclear transfer. You see that sausage coming in? That's the nucleus from a somatic cell being pushed in, push the needle all the way to the back, 
the nucleus is now deposited and that one's done. So you get it out of the way and you can do another one. So this is actually, for me, kind of occupational therapy. I like doing this because I don't have to answer the telephone or anything and it's a fun experiment to do, although I'm not the best one by far in the lab at this. What you're looking at here is a nuclear transfer of rabbit oocytes. Uh, my colleague, Kevin Egan, who does this much better than I, is an expert on doing it with mouse. And I would say we're now very good at doing this with mouse and rabbit oocytes, probably as good as anyone. And we're just beginning in these months now to do this with human oocytes, as I described. So let me make clear why we want to do this, and I'm going to finish up the science part now. We want to create, as an example, ALS embryonic stem cells. Now, why would you want to create a disease stem cell? So here is an embryonic stem cell, then, derived from an ALS patient. What do we want to do with these? Well, we want to watch them differentiate into motor neurons in a dish alongside control, wild-type, or let's say undiseased patient ESL. So here are motor neurons in the two cases. And look very carefully at them for what a biologist would call a phenotype, a defect. These are often precipitates or inclusion bodies. We can do this with electrophysiology. We can look at the genes that turn on off. But in simplest form, what you're doing is watching cells become motor neurons and saying, where do these screw up? Which genes came on or didn't come on when they should have? And I'm going to show you one result which encourages me from most to think that this is going to work. Here's an experiment showing where we watch embryonic stem cells differentiate into motor neurons in a dish. And we can see a very clear difference between the ALS neurons and the controls in terms of their survivability. Now, what's much more interesting is this amyloid inclusion body or plaque formation, Lewy body formation. And we're, I would say, hopeful based on results from Kevin's lab with mice that we'll be able to see this in humans. If this is true, it leads to the next kind of experiment, which is what I mentioned before of chemical screening. So what is the best possible result in the next few years? So this is dreaming about if everything works properly, if discoveries can be made and resources are available to do it. My view is the best possible result is to do chemical screening to find drugs which slow or prevent neural degeneration in this context. So let me be clear about what that would mean. If one received a diagnosis of ALS, it would not be a cure. It would not be a regeneration it would not turn the clock back. It would simply mean that it would take you longer to die. That is, it would extend your life by some years. So I think, in the first instance, the best thing we can hope for is to find drugs using these disease-specific cells to slow degeneration. The next phase of the work, in my view, if I'm going to predict, is going to be that we will begin to understand what I call the root causes of these diseases and actually get at what their causes are. And in my opinion, that's the only hope for really getting at prevention and cure. If I take the disease I'm most interested in, again, type 1 diabetes, we are completely clueless about what is the initial signal that causes the immune system to attack the beta cells. We don't know if it's an immune defect or a beta cell defect. But if we have diabetic ES cells in a dish and can make T cells and beta cells, we can watch them like a stalker and say, when do you screw up? What do you do wrong? And that's how we will eventually get at prevention for these kind of degenerative diseases. But I want to make 
clear at the same time, as hopeful as I'm sounding. This is many, many years away. This is not going to happen in a year or two. It's going to take a very long time and many people working on it to achieve that goal. Well, if we go back to that and say that this is so hopeful, why aren't we doing it? I sort of don't need to tell you all that this has come into kind of full frontal attack with religious and political views about the right to do this sort of research. And so I'd like, with your indulgence, to take this opportunity in the last few minutes to give you my views, since others who I think know perhaps not as much about this as I do have no trouble pontificating about it as they are running for various elected offices. Let's talk a bit about what the real issue here is. It's an issue that I've purposely skipped over at the moment, which is where do these human embryonic stem cells come from? I've sort of hinted about it, but I haven't actually said where they come from. So let's be clear about where they come from and what that means. There are two sources of stem cells. You'll remember I said at the beginning about adult and embryonic stem cells. No one really worries much about adult stem cells, and rather few scientists ever isolate stem cells from fetal material. It's these embryonic stem cells which come from an early stage of human development, the blastocyst stage, and I'll show you a picture of that in a moment, which are these truly totipotent cells, cells that can make any part of the body. How is that done? One begins with a cleavage stage embryo, which is grown to a stage called a blastocyst. Actually, a nicer word to remember, which is a slightly earlier stage, is called morula, which comes from the word meaning raspberry. Because on the outside, it looks sort of like a raspberry. These are unspecialized, undifferentiated cells. There are a few hundred of them in something that's about 100 microns across, again, this, about the size of a period in a sentence. The inner cells are removed, and I'll show you a picture of that in a moment. They're grown in a culture dish. They're dissociated and spread out, and then an embryonic stem cell colony or culture is so derived. This was first discovered decades ago in the 1970s in using mice, and it's subsequently been shown in the 90s in other primates, including humans. Here's what a real-life picture of this looks like the first five days of development. Here's a two-cell stage, four, eight, Here's this morula or raspberry, and then looking inside the blastocyst, which is five days old, it's these cells here, the inner cell mass, which have the capacity to give rise to an embryonic stem cell. How do we do this with humans? Well, we begin the same way as we do with mice and other animals, with a human blastocyst. So let's be clear about where that comes from. That comes from an in vitro fertilization clinic. After a couple has been determined, or it has been determined that they are infertile by what you would call natural methods for fertilization or reproduction. They each donate, in one case an egg, and in another case a sperm, which is, are combined in a petri dish to make a fertilized egg, which is grown to this stage. Most of those die, more than half of them die, but some of them are viable and are implanted into a woman to make a baby. There are almost always leftover excess blastocysts, which are then frozen. At the moment, it's estimated that there are 400,000 frozen embryos in the United States. I work with an IVF clinic called Boston IVF, which is the largest clinic in the country. And they have about 10,000 such frozen blastocysts in their freezer. And on the whole, most of those are either kept frozen forever or discarded. Very rarely, though the president would imply otherwise, these are donated to other couples for 
to make a baby. But that is a, an, op, an option that could be, you could say, a disposition of these frozen blastocysts. The numbers, here's a picture of how we do it. So here's human blastocysts giving rise to ES cells. We've used about 300 frozen blastocysts over the last years and have divide, derived 32 different versions, 32 cell lines in collaboration with Doug Powers at Boston IVF. So let's think a bit about then where those come from. They are material which would otherwise be discarded. And of course, there's fully informed consent by the sperm and egg donor, multiple rounds of consent, I might add. And this brings us to the issue then really about what is the status of that blastocyst? And that's what I want to finish up talking about. Because it relates then, of course, to religion and philosophy, which then brings us immediately to politics and public policy and even the law. Now, one could give a whole lecture, if, particularly if one were a political scientist on this subject, but I'm just going to touch on what I consider a few main points. The first has to do with the suggestion or the reminder that our nation has not found a way to have an intelligent discussion about this issue. And I show these two pictures here really for two reasons. The first, a person, Christopher Reeve, who I much admired, was an outstanding spokesman for this sort of research. Christopher's brother, Brock Reeve, now is the administrative director of the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. And we've talked often about Christopher's passion and interest in trying to get the nation to have what he would call an intelligent discussion about this issue. But the main reason I'm showing you this slide, though I don't think you can see it here, is that the Newsweek on the left is from the year 2001. The one on the right is from 2004. We're now in 2007. And the language more or less is the same. It's military language, stem cell wars, battle of this over that, arguments about funding. But it's not in any of these magazines or newspapers an accurate description of what is the issue. And many people in the public are quite confused about where stem cells come from. In fact, in some states, people believe they come from aborted fetuses. So here is the real issue, in my opinion. It's a simple question with a complicated answer. When does a person begin? Now, you might think I should have said, when does life begin? But to a biologist, you can't really say that because we think life began eons ago. And so it's better to think about the individual. When does, a, when does personhood begin? The point of this slide which is a sort of joke slide, is to make you realize that this is not a scientific question. This is a metaphysical question. It's not a question which scientists are ever going to be able to answer. Nor do I think it's a question which politicians seem to be able to answer. This is a question which all responsible citizens should think about, and science can help inform your thinking about it by pointing out a few things. For example, development is a process we go from a single fertilized cell through this four or eight cell stage shown here to a blastocyst to eventually become this wonderful creation of a human being. But there's no special time that one can point to and say, aha, there is a person. Now, there are various religious views on when personhood begins, when ensoulment occurs. But it, as I say, it's a theological question at that point or a metaphysical question. It is not a scientific question, when does a person begin? Our nation, however, has struggled over this, in my opinion, by connecting it to the tortuous politics of abortion. And I don't need to tell you that we haven't actually, for some 30 or 40 years, managed to achieve any kind of public consensus about how to deal with that knotty problem. I predict that if things continue as they are now, 
stem cells will become the abortion issue of the next few decades. I want to show you a puzzle, though, as a way to think about this, and then I'll come back to abortion in a second. I want to remind you about what I said tonight, which is that human eggs and embryonic stem cells, when we study them, involve egg or cell loss or destruction. Our society has decided that that loss and destruction is permissible to treat a condition called infertility. Remember that in IVF clinics, every day, eggs and embryos are destroyed and thrown away. And our society has concluded that there's no problem doing that. So this is okay. It's okay to try to think about treatments for infertility and involve the destruction of human fertilized eggs. But what about potential treatments for diabetes, Parkinson's, etc., these other diseases? We've decided as a public that it's not okay to do that. This is a simple kind of logical puzzle in my view. Where, where did infertility get to hold this special treatment and all other diseases not? I frankly don't understand that. But I think it is related to, oddly enough, this issue of abortion. So I'm almost done, but I want to finish. So I've had to read more than I would have liked about various religious views on these things. And I'll tell you that for most religions, this issue of when a person begins or when life begins is not something that there is any serious religious doctrine about in the following sense. For most religions, there is what I would call constructive ambiguity in trying to answer that question. There's one religion where that's not true, which is the Catholic religion, where it's very clear that the Catholic Church says persons begin at the fertilization stage when ensoulment occurs. On another occasion, one could discuss some of the logical problems with holding that view, but it is the Catholic Church's dictum that that's when life or personhood begins. Let me connect that again, as I said, back to thinking about how we could move forward and abortion. I think the only way forward is going to be to have some kind of informed public discussion and establish a coherent federal policy. The way our Congress operates at the moment, I don't have great confidence that that will happen. Most of the Senate hearings are circus shows with people who know rather little about the subject and are, are appearing for political purposes, not to inform or enlighten the Congress or the public. I think it's fair to say that all scientists and almost everyone I know feels that we should ban human reproductive cloning. This is a relatively simple thing to do, and rather than holding this out as a slippery slope and the threat for why we shouldn't do this research, we should simply pass a federal law, which is very simple to do, to ban human reproductive cloning. I think if we can do those two things, we can then explore stem cell potential with federal funding and regulatory oversight. But without those first two bullet points, we don't seem to be able to get there. The last slide I'm going to show you is a sort of advertisement for how we're trying to think about this problem at Harvard. Uh, David Scadden and I, in the last few years, have spent a lot of time trying to get, and I'm glad to say we've been successful, to get the local hospitals, 11 of them, to work together to cooperate in the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, which now involves about 100 different faculty members and about 600 researchers working together to try to explore the interest in biology and the medical applications of this research. This, of course, 
is difficult in the context that for much of the research I described today, federal funding is not eligible. That is, this work is not eligible for federal funding. And it's depended to this point on the generosity of philanthropists. I am nevertheless hopeful that with universities like Princeton and others moving more aggressively in this area, that there will be an important scientific success. I don't know when that will happen, but I know it won't happen unless we have the nation's best and brightest young people working on the problem. But I am hopeful, and I do believe, that with people working on this problem with, in a cooperative and concerted way, there will be a medical success of sufficient importance that it will create a kind of um, a political tsunami, something where it will be very difficult for people to argue that because of a theoretical concern about an unanswerable question, that is, when does personhood begin, we shouldn't explore the potential of research with material that's otherwise going to be thrown away. So I haven't been very careful in my comments about my views about what I think is holding up this research and what I think is the way forward. And if you think my marks are somewhat intemperate, that's in part because of the accusations I receive about why I'm trying to do this research. I hope I've explained clearly tonight why we're trying to do it, and I'll be glad to answer any questions. Thanks for your attention. Thank you for the talk, uh, Dr. Milne. As you're probably aware, the uh, Senate, uh, by coincidence, started today some new hearings on a new um, embryonic stem cell uh, bill. And, and one of the terms I keep hearing is that there's hopes for a compromise uh, by exploring the possibility of using non-viable embryonic stem cells or using placental cells as substitutes. Now, scientifically, does this have any credibility? Um, in short form, no. This is just some political disinformation to pretend as if there's a way to find a compromise. What people are talking about is there's a clinical decision made about whether or not one embryo looks better than another. And the look has to do with the idea of whether or not it would, in their estimation, make a better baby than another one. But that is just a guess. And so that guess doesn't really have any scientific basis because you can't do enough experiments to say, let's take embryos which we think have slightly more um, bumps on their surface and then implant those into women and see if they make more babies or make more babies more efficiently. That experiment's never been done. So this is, in my view, largely a side issue, much like the bill that is before the Congress on whether or not to allow federal funding on embryo, embryonic stem cells that were derived after August 2001 as opposed to before August 2001. The, the real issue, in my opinion, has to do with the kinds of experiments I described tonight, and those are not even under discussion in our Congress for reasons I think you probably know. Among, for example, the people running for president, Senator Brownback of Kansas, has said that the work I do should be criminally prosecuted with a year in jail and a $10 million fine. And he's likened me in public to Nazi war criminals. So they're not interested in the kind of research I'm talking about, as you could guess, if they're willing to punish it 
with, with criminal penalties. Um, I'm just curious what you think, the, how much of this is, like, how much semantics has played into this. Do you think of years ago when the term embryonic stem cell was coined, it was called a totipotent stem cell, and that, that word embryonic wasn't hitched with it. Do you think the public would have latched onto this in the way that they have, or do you think it would be the problem that it is today anyways? I think it would have helped, um, as you say, if there had been a different term than embryo. Scientists use the word embryo pretty much to mean anything from a fertilized egg in some cases, till birth. Technically, that shouldn't be so. They should use it up until the fetal stage. There's an even a term called a pre-embryo in medical textbooks. But the simple fact is when you say human embryo to the public, I believe what most people see in their mind's eye is one of those pictures from Leonard Nielsen of a baby with arms and eyes and fingers just growing. And so you're right. They imagine that the cells come from that stage of development, which they do not. On the other hand, most people um, that I know, when they're told where the cells come from, namely from these undifferentiated blastocysts, have a different view of embryonic stem cell research after having been uh, informed. This is what I meant in, in part when I was asking for an informed public debate. That's not been the attention, intention of the congressional hearings where I've attended, but rather to purposely promulgate disinformation to create a scare or a fear about this sort of research. So if you can think of a way of changing the word now, I think people would just say you're playing a semantic game to try to hide something. And so I've even been advised not to use the word cloning um, by my wife included when we go to dinner parties. She says, you can talk about what you want, but don't say the word cloning. But I actually think it's a mistake not to say what it is. I mean, somatic cell nuclear transfer is a mouthful. Cloning is used by scientists to make copies of genes or copies of cells. And I find that most people are capable of understanding it if you explain what it is. So there have um, been some recent advancements in um, hematopoietic stem cells or bone marrow stem cells that allow them to be mobilized um, out of the bone marrow and into the peripheral blood to ease the... Um, Um, well, certainly that's an, an interesting and potentially important advance. I don't see that it has broad significance beyond treating blood diseases, um, if that was the intention of your question. You may have also been asking, well, could one use those methods to see in cases where we don't know if there's an adult stem cell like the lung? Does it mobilize lung stem cells? I think those are all very good experiments, and I'm a proponent of studying stem cells of all types, embryonic and adult. Hi. Sorry. Uh, can you just comment on if the stem cells in culture are very hardy, and you said they constantly replicate and they last for a long time, why is there such a need for a continued harvesting of blastocysts? That's a great question, and I should have said more about it. While the cells continue to grow forever, 
they sort of, uh, to use a technical term, poop out. After about 20 passages, 20 movements from one dish to another, they lose their full potential, although they keep growing, they can keep growing forever. So that's one reason. But a second reason is that most mice that scientists study are highly related to one another. They're inbred strains. There are, I don't know how many there are experts here. Tom can tell me how many different strains there are. But humans are an outbred population. And so if you want to have representatives of the different vi- of the variation in the human population, then you should think about isolating stem cells that represent the racial, ethnic diversities, the propensity to different diseases that you see in the human population. So that is a second reason for thinking about getting more than one stem cell line. But I think the, the point of your question is a good one, is is it not true that there's an enormous amount of research that can be done with a few cell lines? The answer is yes, except for the problem that after a certain number of transfers or passages, they lose their full potential. Okay, so going back to the political issue, um, do you feel that, I mean, in the future, this debate will be resolved more through political means or like, um, because I see this issue as stemming both from a religious point of view and from political like, ignorance and corruption. Um, so uh, where do you personally feel this issue is going to uh, be resolved? Um, well, you're asking me to guess, which I do anyway, about sort of scientific discoveries. I don't think it's going to be resolved by our religious or political leaders. In fact, I would be more discouraging than that and say that in general, many of our leaders purposely use this information purposely for other reasons, not to clarify, but to obfuscate. I believe, however, it will be solved by a different mechanism, which is a scientific success, as I said before. Nothing will shed brighter light on these arguments than a scientific success treating any one of the diseases I mentioned. What role do you think um, property rights, both intellectual property, patents, and personal property, personal rights to the tissue being used, will play a role in um, the future of stem cell research? Well, intellectual property is is a very rich subject in its own right, but I would say it can play two roles. First, it can hamper research if the holders of the patents don't license it properly. And I'm sorry to say that in this particular field that has happened. On the other hand, it's extremely important if we're ever going to see the products of this research get to people. So even though scientists in an ivory tower don't like the word applied or commercialization, commercialization is a necessary component if we're going to distribute the fruits of this research to people, and their IP is very important. You asked me something else, though, I think, which was about who owns cells or who owns the, the work product. The cells in general are never owned by the donor. Donors sign off their rights to the material in what's called an informed consent. It's explained to them what's going to be done with the material, but they don't have any rights to the material after it's donated for research. But it is a donation. You, You may be, if you're interested in this subject, you may be interested to know that in other countries there are much different policies. In France, for example, if you go into the hospital, 
and any tissue is taken from you. There's no informed consent, and you have no rights to anything. They can do whatever they want with that. So every nation has its own rules about these things. I'm wondering how sufficient are embryonic stem cells obtained from an umbilical cord? That's a good question. The question was about embryonic stem cells coming from the umbilical cord. This is not unlike the claim that adult stem cells can make any cell in the body. So as far as I know, there's no evidence that an embryonic stem cell can be obtained from the umbilical cord. There's an interesting cell that comes from amniotic fluid or umbilical cords, which has the properties of making different cell types in the blood and the mesenchyme, but there's no evidence that that cell is like an embryonic stem cell. Part of the problem, of course, is that the authors of these papers sometimes inflate the conclusions and the reviewers aren't good enough to catch it. But if you're not a scientist, I would liken it to say, let's think, I like basketball. So cells have markers on them. Uh, They express some genes, but one gene doesn't make that cell. Expressing insulin doesn't make a cell a pancreatic beta cell. The basketball analogy would be if I put on Larry Bird's jersey, that would not make me a Boston Celtic. Okay, I can still play basketball, but not like him. Similarly, these amniotic fluid cells have some properties of stem cells, but they are not embryonic stem cells. Um, um, I'd like your comments on something I'm going to say. Um, I believe in the pluripotentiality of any research that our scientists can do. The thing that's concerning me is that I feel that most of this research and science would have leapt leaped forward at a much more tremendous accelerated time if we were having presidents like Jefferson and the forefather and the founding fathers in this nation who were more enlightened as opposed to the present situation, which is becoming religious and uh, intemperate. The question I have for you is, do you believe that would be so, that we would probably be more advancing with the founding fathers and their enlightenment as we are today? Well... It's an interesting question, and I don't know enough history to comment in an intelligent way on what the Founding Fathers would have thought. But while I agree with much of what you said, I would summarize it maybe in the sense of saying that there may be aspects of public policy where theocracy is important. I'm not sure what they would be, but there may be some. (laughs) But science is certainly one in which I don't think theocratic views are helpful. I don't think it's helpful to challenge our scientists to use prayer to cure cancer or to ask for divine insight. I think it's better to have our best young minds at Princeton thinking about the data and designing experiments. Now, um, that's my view of how you should run the National Institutes of Health, but clearly that view is not shared in the White House. Right. The, the interesting part is the secularization of Europe and the, maybe the research in Europe and the Far East will be much more advanced than it will be in this country because of the limitations that you had mentioned before. What are your comments on that? Well, 
I'm not one who thinks the sky is falling and there's a huge brain drain and in the next months this country will have a second-rate biomedical enterprise in this arena. I do think over a decade that could happen and the history would show in the area of human in vitro fertilization, um, in studying human fertilization since the time of Ronald Reagan, there are really hardly any scientists in this country who know anything about it because there were just no federal funds to do it. And the consequence of that you may or may not find important, but the development of things like RU486 always will happen outside of this country because there's no federal funding for human fertilization studies. That could happen in this arena, but I think the public, particularly public philanthropy, has recognized that this area is too important to let it all go offshore. And so I'm rather hopeful both for the year 2008 and for scientific successes. Sam, shall we uh, do more? Okay, sure. I can't see who has the microphone. Oh, yes. yes. Just a quick question for you. If you say that um, it shouldn't be led by religious or political dialogue, what would you suggest as a scientist to promote open discussion of this issue, if it's, especially for someone like myself who's an ethics mm-hmm. person? How do you, as a scientist, inform somebody like myself who can teach my students correctly? What do you suggest? Uh, well, first of all, I didn't su- suggest a solution so much as a process. And I think we can observe in other nations a process where this works very well, in particular the United Kingdom, where religious leaders, scientists, citizens were allowed to comment, to come to public discussions, And then a group of legislators wrote a white paper and proposed that to the government for a vote. That is not how our government works. Our government holds congressional testimonies with the Raelians, who are complete quacks, who say they've visited here from spaceships and have been cloned. That's not a way to establish a thoughtful public policy. So I don't think it's so hard to do it. I just don't think our government has an appetite for doing it. You, you mentioned that the real issue is when does personhood begin in the political and religious debate. And what do you do with the, the, the clear testimony of the scriptures that personhood begins at the very beginning? And I'll just give you three examples. One from Psalm 139 says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. I think that's very pertinent for the stem cells not being formed yet. Another one, Jeremiah 1, before I formed you, I knew you, God speaking to Jeremiah. And a third one from Psalm 51, I was sinful when my mother conceived me. So these are three examples that are very clear. What do you do with that? Since these really inform the personal issue, do you ignore that or what do you do with that? Uh, well, I can say that personally I don't do anything with it because those statements are largely meaningful to me, meaningless to me and have no sense of my evidence of how cells divide. I'm not saying, however, that people who have religious views should do this sort of research. If there's an objection to doing it, I would say then don't do it. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what you're asking me. If you're asking well, me... Well, I would say that with these scriptures, you are taking human life by doing this research. Because of the way you've defined human life. No, it's, it, it's not a matter of my definition, but there is a truth, and if this is true, then... The consequence is that you are taking human You're life. You're right. If that were true, 
then there were consequences. But I don't accept the premise. I was just curious why uh, federal funding is even necessary. This seems like such a good, like for pharmaceutical companies, an incentive to be able to cure all these terrible diseases. Why isn't there more private interest and investment in these sort of things? Um, That's a good question. I think there will be private or business investment in this once the field has matured. But at the moment, it's not far enough along for a pharmaceutical company to see a product in the next year or five years. Maybe a better answer to your question is to remind you that the vast majority of basic research in this country is funded by the National Institutes of Health. Private philanthropy pays a very important role and can be leveraged, but ultimately all of the major discoveries you know of, or at least that I know of in the biomedical arena, have come directly or indirectly from NIH funding. Um, so, I um, heard earlier in your introduction that um, you spoke before Congress on this issue. Um, I just was, was curious as to the reactions um, towards uh, your, your hearing and how um, the politicians took it, um, what you said, and whether they... Um, because I, I was not very familiar with um, what went on during these time, this particular issue. So, Well, I, I mean, a short answer would be that I'm not the only scientist to speak before Congress on this issue, and I don't know how many hearings there have been over the last six or seven years, but it's more than a few. And so I would say let's look at the work product from all of those hearings, what's come of it. And the conclusion is one bill has been vetoed twice. So it hasn't actually established what I would call a coherent and comprehensive federal policy. So if I was making a complaint, it is that the product of those hearings hasn't been very much to date. Well, thank you all for staying so late, and appreciate the time.